Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 22nd, 2015. It's the beginning of a three-day holiday weekend here in the United States. And we're going to uh, do a light episode today. My schedule kind of is dictating that. But believe me, this is not light stuff. I'll explain here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to stop, slow down, open up our Bible, put things back in context to test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, if what they're saying actually squares with God's Word or if it doesn't in their teaching for shameful gain, things that they really ought not to teach, false doctrine, if you know what I mean. So uh, normally we only have one light episode a week. Uh, this Today uh, we're going to do a light episode as we're getting ready to go into the holiday weekend. And by the way, today is the official close of the 2014-2015 heresy hurricane season. That's right. It's it's done. You know, you, see, the thing is, is that heresy is a very lucrative business. And as a result of that, uh, this is the time of year when, you know, those who've made a lot of money fleecing God's sheep, you know, they go in their private jets to their tropical resorts and disappear and, and have some R&R time to relax, recharge the batteries and let their imagination start to wander and think up new kinds of things which they will unleash on the body of Christ once we uh, the fall season begins with Labor Day in September. So that means that, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that there can't possibly be a heresy hurricane. It just means that it's highly unlikely. You know, it's it's not that it's not possible. It's just this. these are not generally the months when that happens. Uh, instead, you know, we're going to end up, <clears throat> yeah, being... Uh, having our ears tickled with uh, movies, uh, movie sermons, and uh, and then this is the time of year when we oftentimes hear second string, third string youth pastors, um, you know, going on stage at the major <laughs> mega churches, and you can see what the upcoming um, rookies are going to look like once they become full blown vision casters. So yeah, this is this is an interesting time of year for fighting for the faith, and uh, and so. Uh, Program ideas become a little bit thin, if you know what I mean. But uh, uh, what we're going to do today, just so you know, it, it, it is a light episode, although we're going to be listening to three lectures. 
And uh, recently, the Association of Confessing Evangelical Lutheran Congregations held a conference. And I want you to think about this for a second. You've probably heard it said that the church is a movement, not an institution. That's not true. The church is an institution. It's not a movement. And because the church is an institution, it has offices. That's right. In fact, a pastor is a man who is the current office holder of the office of pastor within a congregation. And that office has particular duties and responsibilities and requirements for the person who is the office holder. And uh, and so a lot of people don't understand this. And uh, as a result of the kind of the loss, if you would, within the Christian church of this idea that the pastor holds an office, there has been a lot of misunderstanding, and a lot of good pastors have um, been run out of town, if you it, that's the right way of putting it, run out of town by people for unbiblical reasons. There are biblical ways and biblical reasons for removing a pastor from office, but um, just because you don't like his hair or because, you know, whatever, you know, you know if, if he's preaching the gospel, isn't teaching false doctrine, and is not known to be morally, you know, debaucherous, um, you, you you don't really actually have a biblical reason for removing him. Something to consider here. But uh, this was the topic, by the way, of the uh, conference put on by the ACLC, and uh, it's entitled The Office of the Holy Ministry, Unbiblical Removal of Pastors. But they, they, that's not the only thing they talk about here. And if you follow me on uh, Facebook and Twitter, I sent out links to these lectures today, but I'm going to take a few of them to kind of give you the idea, you know, give you, whet your appetite, if you would, so that you can find this and uh, listen to the remaining lectures, because I think this is a neglected uh, topic, a, ne- a neglected doctrine in Scripture within the Church, and uh, if you know it's, and even if you're not a Lutheran, even if you're not a Lutheran, you need to listen to these because this gives us the biblical teaching regarding the office of the pastor. And so the first uh, first lecture we're going to be listening to is from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who broadcasts here on Pirate Christian Radio. He's also the pastor at uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, uh, host of the Table Talk Radio program. Uh, co-host of the Table Talk radio program, and uh, his lecture is going to be on the duties of the pastor, expectations and evaluations. Second lecture we'll listen to is by Todd Wilkin, Todd Wilkin of Issues, etc. Pastor Todd Wilkin will be giving us a lecture on what hearers owe their pastors. And oh, it's, it's not what the vision casting leaders are saying, by the way. So it's going to be talking about table of duties as it comes to the pastors. And then the, the last one that we will be listening to is um, is a lecture by Pastor Dan Bremer entitled "Deposing a Pastor: Biblical and Unbiblical Reasons," and I think these are very vital lectures for people within the body of the Christ uh, within the body of Christ to listen to, consider, and uh, hang on to, if you would. Uh, the reason being is is because when you understand that the church is not a movement, it is an institution, and the pastoral office is an office within that institution, and the institution is established by Christ, that begins to give you, well, the, the, a right way of understanding, um, you know, how church should operate and what the duties of a pastor are. A pastor is not a CEO. He is not to be held accountable to, you know, business standards and business practices and things like that. And unfortunately, uh, the CEO model that has been introduced into the church by the Druckerites, the vision-casting CEO model, 
Um, it's not biblical. In fact, it's contrary to uh, what is revealed in Scripture regarding the office of pastor. So these are going to be important lectures for you to listen to, and of course, if you would like to hear the rest of them, you can at ACELC, that's ACELC.net. Look for their uh, 2015 conference link, and you can listen to the uh, remaining lectures that we did not play on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So without any further ado, here is uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller in his first lecture, Duties of the Pastor, Expectations, and Evaluations. Here we go. Duties of the Pastor, Expectations, and Evaluations. St. Paul says, Romans chapter 10, verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our theology informs our understanding of the office of the Holy Ministry. I want to, in this essay, explore this thesis first by demonstrating the contrasting view of pastor versus priest in the Reformation Reformation time, and then to apply this thesis by looking at the theological assaults that are brought to the Lutheran Church by various new ecclesiologies of our day. First, then, the priesthood of perpetual sacrifice, the pre-Reformation Romanist office of ministry. While the Roman Catholic Church never had a monolithic doctrine, the prominent soteriology of the Middle Ages was a bank-like system of merit administered by the Church and an ontological understanding of grace that imparted strength to earn this merit. In fact, grace kind of washed away the hindering effects of sin so your own strength could do good works. Heaven had a vault full of goodness, filled with the good works of Christ and Mary and the other saints, and the Pope had the key. This understanding is what stood behind the selling of indulgences, the sacrifice of the Mass, the existence of purgatory, the works of the various different orders, the cult of the saints, and the vocation of priest. Through the sacrament of ordination, the Roman priest received the indelible character, and could, on behalf of the Pope, effect the sacrifice of the Mass, whereby God's grace is infused into Christians repairing his nature. The priest offered the unbloody sacrifice of the Mass, imparting grace to the participant, which empowered them towards meritorious good works. The Mass was also sacrificed to the dead who are still paying down their debt in purgatory. The Council of Trent, which has anathemas for everybody, especially anybody who would get close to confessing the gospel, has an anathema denying that the words of institution, for anyone who would deny that the words of institution would institute a new priesthood. I think if you want a picture, I one time went to Costco and uh, I found a huge thing of carrots on sale for like $3, like 30 pounds of carrots. And I, in triumph, came home with this big, massive thing of carrots. And Carrie said, what are we going to do with all of these carrots? This is how to think of the Council of Trent and their anathemas. They've got all these anathemas, like they went to Costco and got them bargain priced. And they're trying to figure out ways to anathematize them. We were trying to see if the dog would eat carrots. Trent will anathematize anybody. So here's one. If anyone says... (laughs) That by the words, do this for commemoration of me, words of institution in the Lord's Supper. Christ did not institute the apostles as priests, or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood, let him be anathema. Or again, if anyone says that there is not in the New Testament a visible and external priesthood, 
or that there is not any power of consecrating and offering the true body and blood of the Lord and of forgiving and retaining sins, but only an office and bare ministry of preaching the gospel, or to those who do not preach are not priests, let them be anathema. In other words, if you say that a person has to preach to be a pastor, then you're anathema too. <laughs> now, further... Catholic doctrine says that this fallen world, the fallen nature of this world, is being perfected by grace through the ministry of the church. This means that the church must possess both temporal and spiritual authority, both swords. So, with absurd bombast, Pope Boniface lays claim to both swords in the bull Unum Sanctum with these words. This is amazing. I brought this to my... Catholic uh, priest friend, Father Angel, uh, he, Angel would call and Carrie said, my wife, who's calling you named Angel? <laughs> oh, Father Angel. I brought these words to Father Angel and he said, yeah, that's embarrassing. Here's what it says. We are informed by the texts of the Gospels that in this church and in its power are two words, namely the spiritual, two swords it should be, namely the spiritual and temporal. For when the apostle says, behold, here are two swords, that is to say, in the church, since the apostles were speaking, the Lord did not reply that there were too many, but sufficient. In other words, their proof text for why the Pope has two swords is that when they're getting ready to leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter says, here are two swords, and Jesus says, that is enough. That's the proof text for the Pope having both swords. Eesh. Certainly, the one who denies that the temporal sword is in the power of Peter has not listened well to the word of the Lord commanding, Put your sword into your scabbard. <laughs> Both, therefore, are in the power of the church. That is to say, the spiritual and the material sword. But the former to be administered for the church, the latter by the church. The former in the hand of the priest, the latter in the hands of kings and soldiers, but at the will and sufferance of the priests. Uh, in the footnote there, you'll note, you know, one of the problems, our Lutheran confession says very clearly that the Pope is Antichrist, and people kind of balk at that. And the easiest way I've found to, in fact, show people that that's true is simply to show them this little verse that I put in the third footnote, uh, the, the last sentence of this bull from Boniface VIII, Unum Sanctum, where he says, Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. And people say, whoa, he's Antichrist. You don't even have to tell him. No, they don't. The Roman priest, then, is the re chiefly the re-sacrificer of Christ, the distributor of grace, and sometimes the salesman of the same. And the office through which the Lord was renewing this falling world the Pope understood things in terms of power and not authority, which is the difference between infusion and imputation. And this utter confusion of law and gospel created an equal confusion about the office of the holy ministry. Now, Martin Luther had this theology, this same medieval theology, but he hated it. And, his own words, he hated the God who was demanding this kind of perfection of nature. Luther tells the story of his own discovery of the gospel in his introduction to his Latin works. Luther was pressing on these words in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where, he, uh, where Paul talks about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel. 
Now, Luther was taught that the righteousness was his own doing. It was an active righteousness, philosophical righteousness. Uh, but there was a word that didn't fit in the context, and that is the word faith. Faith is what believes a promise. If righteousness is by faith, then it must be a promised righteousness, not a commanded righteousness. And like a flash, Luther sees it. I think I put his own words somewhere in the footnotes there, so you can, you can read it. The gospel is the gift of the Lord's righteousness through the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And this is why our salvation is apart from works. The saving righteousness which the Lord gives to our account is not our own righteousness at all. And this is the biblical doctrine of justification, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. Augsburg 4. They teach, that's the Lutherans, that men cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merit, works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, who by his death has made satisfaction for our sins. This faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. Now this is a completely, radically different understanding of the Lord's work of saving man than the Catholic Church had taught. Salvation by grace through faith apart from works. The distinction between law and gospel flips the light on in the scripture. And now with the clarity of the scripture restored, the sufficiency of the scripture is also restored. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura, the three solas of the Reformation. But when the Lutherans speak of the uniqueness of the scripture, sola scriptura, they mean more than simply the source of truth. The scriptures are now the unique tool that the Holy Spirit uses to create and sustain faith. In perhaps the most brilliant and insightful theological statement made outside of the scriptures, Luther says this in so many words. Small called articles, uh, small called 3.8. In those things which concern the spoken outward word, we must firmly hold that God grants his spirit or grace to no one except through or with the preceding outward word, externum verbum. Luther goes on to explain. In a word, enthusiasm inheres in Adam and his children from the beginning, from the first fall to the end of the world. It's poison having been implanted and infused into them by the old dragon. And it's, it is the origin, power, life, and strength of all heresy, especially that of the papacy and Muhammad. Therefore, we must and ought to consistently maintain this point that God does not wish to deal with us otherwise than through the spoken word and sacraments. Now, this means, by the way, that if you have a false teaching, the origin of that false teaching is always enthusiasm. And you don't understand the false doctrine unless you can connect the dots back to this enthusiasm. Now, this only of the text here, of Sola Scriptura, is involving the gracious working of God. Uh, maybe just pause there and say something. So normally when we say Sola Scriptura, we're thinking of where does the doctrine come from? But there's more to it than that. When we say sola scriptura, we are saying that the Holy Spirit does his gracious work among mankind only through the scripture, through the external word. This explains the that we may of Augsburg 5. After speaking of justification, Augsburg 4, the princes confess that we may obtain this faith, this justifying faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. 
For through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Ghost is given, who works faith, where and when it pleases God in them that hear the gospel, to wit, that God, not for our own merits, but for Christ's sake, justifies those who believe they are received into grace for Christ's sake. They condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that the Holy Ghost comes to men without the external word, through their own preparations and works. Now, this is a profound theological insight, and it is unique to the Lutheran confession. The Lord's word and the Lord's word alone is efficacious. The word of God is the singular means and instrument of the Holy Spirit to save mankind. This, by the way, I mean, this means that the Lutheran church is the only church to confess the efficacy of the scripture. Uh, The Roman Catholic church can't do it because you don't have the efficacy of the word apart from the indelible character of ordination. On the other side, our Reformed friends can't do it. Calvin drives a wedge between the preached word and the uh, internal calling. So there's two species of calling, so they don't have it either. And this means, because the Lutheran Church is the only church with the efficacy of the word, that the Lutheran Church is the only church with a right understanding of the sacraments, and the only church with the absolution, and the only church with a right understanding of conversion, and therefore the only church with a right understanding of evangelism, and the only church with a right understanding of worship. It all goes back to the efficacy of the word. Now, I think it's also amazing that all of the arguments that we have in the church are are about those things, right? About conversion or evangelism, about worship, about the office of the holy ministry. In other words, they all go back to that root, the efficacy of the word. As Luther himself said, all heresy or false doctrine comes from enthusiasm. Now, all of this was right under Luther's nose when he was busy hating the word, the righteousness of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation for all who believe. That's the efficacy of the word, the power of the gospel. And this is definitive for our confessors. The sacraments are water with God's word of promise, or the body and blood of Jesus with the word of promise. The church is where the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. Worship, wait, I said that, didn't I? Worship is the preaching and hearing of the gospel. It's the distribution and reception of the sacraments. Conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And the office of the Holy Ministry, then, is the office of the Word, the preaching office. So that the two unique marks of the church, the gospel rightly preached and the sacrament rightly administered, are also the two unique marks of the office. Now, this understanding of the gospel lets the Lutheran confessors restore the office of the Holy Ministry to its proper place, which is exactly what St. Paul does in Romans chapter 10. So we'll read the text. Moses writes, this is uh, Paul in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 1, starting at verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That is, the righteousness of the law requires doing or obedience. But the righteousness of the gospel is of a completely different sort. Paul continues, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim or preach. You see, the righteousness of the gospel is not about our ascent into heaven by some sort of mystical experience or about our descent into hell, atoning for our own sins by suffering or works. The righteousness of the gospel is brought right to us by the preached word. 
So Paul continues. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This word of righteousness preached and promised is not kept by our doing, by our works, but by our believing and by our confessing. So, St. Paul says, how can we believe a promise that we haven't heard? And skipping ahead a couple verses. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So Paul says that the righteousness of faith is delivered in the preaching. This, is, this happens when preachers see to the work. So the saving work of God in the world is bound up to the preaching office. And Paul, with this understanding, will quote Isaiah, one of the strangest and most wonderful texts of the scripture. As it is written, says Paul, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now Paul, and Isaiah too really, will talk rarely of beauty. But here it is in the scripture. Something is brought to to us as beautiful, as wonderful, as praiseworthy. And what is it? Feet. (laughs) Now, not just any feet. The feet of runners. I've heard that the feet of runners are notoriously nasty. I've, I've never actually run anywhere, so I don't, can't prove that with my own feet. But these are the feet of the preacher, the feet that carry to us the mouth that proclaims the good news. So, so, so Paul praises the preacher's feet in order to praise the surpassing beauty of the preacher's office because it is the office of the good news. It's the office of the gospel. It's the office of the forgiveness of sins, of faith in Christ, of bringing to us, to our ears and into our hearts, the very righteousness of Christ. And so Paul concludes, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see, our theology informs our understanding of the office. And Luther understood that the office grows out of the distinction between law and gospel, and especially the efficacy of the word, that through the preached word, God saves us. So the office is an office of preaching. Now, there's another distinction that comes along from sacrifice to sacrament and the ordination of a lot more priests. From the distinction of law and gospel also grows the distinction between sacrament and sacrifice. A sacrifice is something offered to God. A sacrament is, on the other hand, God's gift to us. Here I quote from Apology 24, giving that distinction, which is kind of nice. The sacrifices are further distinguished between the atoning or propitiatory sacrifices and a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There is a singular atoning and propitiatory sacrifice, which is the death of Jesus on the cross. There the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. There on the cross, God's wrath is completely and eternally propitiated. Forgiveness is won. As Jesus said, it is finished. Now, Far from being a propitiatory sacrifice, the Lord's Supper, the Lutherans understood, was a sacrament, the delivery of the promise. This, by the way, gets uh, an anathema also. I mean, we could probably anathematize everything I've said so far. But here's the anathema for this idea. If anyone saith, 
that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it's a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated in the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits only him who receives it, or that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. You see, the Catholic Church insists on the, sac- on the Lord's Supper being a sacrifice. The Lutherans say, no, it's a sacrament. And here's this distinction from Luther, which has profound theological uh, oh, somethings. Uh, this is from Against the Heavenly Prophets. Luther says this, We treat the forgiveness of sins in two ways. First, how it is achieved and won. Second, how it is distributed and given to us. Christ has achieved it on the cross, it's true, but he has not distributed it or given it on the cross. He's not won it in the supper or sacrament. There he has distributed and given it to the word, as also in the gospel where it is preached. So the distinction of the winning of forgiveness and the distributing of the forgiveness is there. And the pastor's work, the office, is the distribution work. Now, with this distinction, a couple of things happen. First is, the Lutherans are able to talk about the priesthood of all believers. That every Christian is ordained into the priesthood as Peter preached in Romans, or sorry, in Peter, <laughs> Peter chapter 2, that, uh, to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and of love to the neighbor. So this false distinction between priest and Christian is torn down. The, the false distinction between holy work and secular work is, fall, is, is, is torn down. And, and with this distinction goes the distinction of all the institutions of the Roman church, especially the monasteries. In fact, with this distinction falling, the, uh, the false doctrine of purgatory falls, the distinction between a saint and a Christian. But it is important for us to note that while the Reformation was tearing down these false distinctions, the difference between monks and secular families, between priests and bishops, between holy and half-holy, the the Reformation is also reestablishing distinctions that had been lost, especially the distinction of the two kingdoms, the right-hand and left-hand kingdom of God, the distinction between nature and grace, uh, and this is the distinction between law and gospel. And this distinction between pastor and hearer is now able to be established and blessed. So the confessors say, of ecclesiastical order, they teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments unless he has been regularly called. Every Christian is a priest, true, but not every Christian is a pastor. So that the Lutherans, while they were busy tearing down distinctions, maintained the uniqueness of the pastoral office, and they did it by giving to that office the role of distributing the sacraments. The work and authority of pastors is now outlined along these lines. This is their opinion that the power of the keys, or the power of bishops, according to the gospel, is a power or commandment of God to preach the gospel, to remit and retain sins, and to administer sacraments. For with this commandment, Christ sent forth his apostles. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Go preach the gospel to every creature. This power, the power of the office of bishop, pastor, is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments and so forth. Now, here again, our theology informs our understanding of the office. And the Lutheran understanding between the 
between sacrifice and sacrament sets the pastor in place not to offer sacrifices, but to administer sacraments. It's a ministry of ministration, a service, and specifically a service of holy things. This leads us to the next part, which is titled in your paper, Reformation of Pastoral Care, but should better be understood as a reformation of order. There's one more piece to put in place to give a full picture of the Lutheran understanding of the pastoral office. Luther had, from his study of the scripture, a profound understanding of vocation, of God's instituting and ordering the world. In fact, I think it can be argued, I've never seen it argued, but I think it could be argued, that the distinction between law and gospel is a subset of Luther's understanding of vocation. It's simply his attempt to answer the questions, what's the vocation of the law and what's the vocation of the gospel? Luther, in all of his works, was a theologian hunting for words of institution. And not only the words of institution for the sacraments, and normally when we say words of institution, we think of the Lord's Supper. But Luther was looking for the words of institution for everything in the world. In fact, this is why he spends so much time on the Ten Commandments in the large catechism. Luther is reordering the world according to God's instituting words. The Roman church had brought disorder into the world through their false doctrine. For example, forbidding priests to marry, the distinction between holy and secular estates, giving both sorts to the church, establishing monasteries and various orders. But none of these estates had God's command or institution. Now, I think it's a great irony of our own time that the only people we have left to talk about God's ordering of the world are our friends in the Catholic Church. It's the same people that Luther started out to correct on the same exact topic, which just shows how nutty the world has gone. Now, the Lutherans' strong understanding of God's ordered world allowed them to revisit the three ancient estates of family, church, and state and put them all in the proper relation to one another. The state is derived from the family, and it's instituted in the fourth commandment. That little footnote you want to track down, it's a beautiful note from the large catechism. The church is in a state of the second and third commandments of the first table instituted there. Now, this takes the sword, natural government, earthly government, away from the church, but it establishes the church in the authority of God's word. The doctrine of vocation and the three estates Establish the church as an institution. Now, this is going to be especially important later for us to get our heads around this. The church is an institution, like the institution of marriage, like the institution of family, like the institution of the state. And the office of holy ministry, then, is attending to the institution. Uh, we'll get to that more. Okay, in conclusion, then, of the first part, the simplicity of office. There is then, because of our doctrine of law and gospel, a fantastic vocational clarity in the Lutheran Church around the office of holy ministry. The church is where there is word and sacrament, the efficacy of the word. The gospel is found in word and sacrament. Conversion is worked by the Holy Spirit through the word and sacrament. Worship is the Lord giving us the gifts of word and sacrament. And the office of holy ministry is the office of distributing or ministering the word and sacrament. The preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments are the duties, the only essential duties of the pastor. And this is because the sacraments are the two essential marks of the church, because the word is the instrument of the Holy Spirit, and because the church was instituted by the Lord Jesus precisely for the purpose of distributing his gifts. Here's Luther in the large catechism. 
Everything, therefore, in the Christian church is ordered to the end that we shall daily obtain there nothing. One of my elders told me that they thought they could just stop there. We get nothing around here. <laughs> but Luther keeps going. Everything in the Christian church is ordered to the end that we shall daily obtain there nothing but the forgiveness of sin through the word and signs to comfort and encourage our conscience as long as we live here. Thus, although we have sins... The grace of the Holy Ghost does not allow them to injure us because we are in the Christian church where there is nothing but continuous, uninterrupted forgiveness of sin, both in that God forgives us and that we forgive, bear with, and help each other. Now, the aim of the work, then, is comfort. The two marks of the church in Augsburg 7 are the two duties of the pastor in Augsburg 28. And all of this drives towards the singular goal of comforting terrified consciences. Here's Luther talking about something in Galatians. When I have this righteousness within me, the external righteousness of the gospel, I descend from heaven like the rain that makes the earth fertile. That is, I come forth into another kingdom and I perform good works whenever the opportunity arises. If I am a minister of the word, I preach, I comfort the saddened, I administer the sacraments. Pretty simple. One of the uniquenesses of our Lutheran confessions is the insistence that the right use of doctrine ends with comforted consciences. And it's no different when it comes to the office of pastor and his duties. It's one of the things that we want to notice when we're reading through the book of Concord, our Lutheran confessions, is that everything is always driving at comfort, comforting terrified consciences. Now, this short list of duties, preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, can be expanded. I think along the same lines that Luther does. You know, those are the two marks of the church, but Luther will have the seven marks of the church in his on the councils and church churches. Johann Gerhardt does the same thing with the duties of pastors in his little work, the duties of the ministry, ministers of the church. Uh, President Harrison uh, published this as a little pamphlet uh, a couple of years ago when he was looking around the Lutheran fathers for kind of any mention of mercy, really, is what I think it was. And he found it there in this place, so he published it, and you can get it uh, free from uh, the uh, synodical office. Uh, Pastor Wilkin was supposed to pick up. I ordered some to be left there, and he was supposed to pick them up for me yesterday, but forgot. So you can ask him if he could send you a copy. I'm sure he'd be happy to do it. Gerhard, though, lists the seven duties of the pastor, and here they are. I've just pulled them out, and I've pulled out all the verses that Gerhard uses to support these seven duties. And, and I hope that for you pastors especially, that this list of seven duties of the pastor with the scripture would be fertile ground for meditation. One, the most important duties of ministers of the church is to preach the word. Two, the second duty of ministers is to administer the sacraments. Three, the third duty of ministers is, to, is diligently praying for the flock entrusted to them. Four, their fourth duty then is the honest control of their life and behavior. Five, the fifth duty of ministers is to administer church discipline. Six, the, duty, the sixth duty of ministers is to preserve the rituals of the church. Seven, the seventh duty of the ministry is to care, is the care of the poor and the visitation of the sick. Gerhard pays special attention in this treatise to the life of pastors. And in fact, he has an extended discussion of each Greek word that Paul uses in, in, in Titus and First and Second Timothy to describe the minister's life. 
The pastoral epistles especially highlight these responsibilities, the aptitudes, the habits of the pastor. And Gerhard will work hard to distinguish between the normal virtues that belong to all Christians and the special virtues that are required of the pastor. As Luther reminds us, the pastor has to give special attention both to his life and his doctrine for the sake of his enemies. Sorry, he has to pay careful attention to his life for the sake of the enemies of the church. And he has to pay special attention to his doctrine for the friends that are Christians. Now, Gerhard concludes his masterful treatment, which it really is beautiful, with these words. These are the seven most important duties of ministers of the church to which we can relate the rest conveniently. The apostle embraces them all with one word. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful 1 Corinthians 4. Now, I suppose that these duties of the pastor could be expanded further, and in the back of your page, uh, you'll see a kind of a chart where I've attempted to do this. I've taken the kind of duties and habituses of a pastor, and, and I've put them around these seven duties from Gerhard and kind of added a few things to them myself. But all of these duties are simply an unfolding of the two chief duties, the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments according to their institution. And if you wanted a checklist... I think that Gerhard's seven duties would be it. And the standard of the evaluation of the pastor's work is also established here in 1 Corinthians 4, faithfulness. The vocation of pastor, then, is simple. But this does not mean that it's easy. In fact, the scriptures warn of the difficulty. 1 Timothy 3 will serve to illustrate the point. The saying is trust. Oh, let me go to the next one. The next one's more frightful. James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I always thought that that would be a good, uh, ver- a good text that the seminary recruiting office should have on its door to get more people to come. Not many should be teachers because that office has a stricter judgment. Now, I've wondered, and here's a bit of my own opinion about this. I've wondered if the Lord has arranged the work of pastor to ensure that nobody is actually good at it. I mean, simply consider this, the way our personalities work, and we have to face up to this fact. The guy who likes to spend hours concentrating on the study of ancient texts normally does not like to stand in front of people and talk. Or the guy who likes to sit in meetings and make sure everything is arranged just right normally does not like his his evenings to be interrupted with emergencies. A pastor then is required to be an introvert and an extrovert, creative and disciplined, a good listener and a good speaker and a good writer, a logical thinker with emotional empathy, holy and relatable. In other words, nobody is good at it. Now, wrestling with this difficulty, though, works itself out really in two different directions. We are given by the Lord, us pastors, to have a pride of office and a humility of person, but this is often confused. The pastor who understands rightly the great authority of his office becomes proud not only of his office but also of his person and subsequently receives any compliment or criticism into his own person. On the other hand, 
There's the pastor that knows his shortcomings and his inability to bear the office with the dignity it requires, and he reacts by reducing the office to something more manageable. Now, both of these approaches are wrong, and both of you know them. You've seen them in action all over the place. The scriptures would set us to a pride of office and a humility of person, taking the teaching and the work seriously, but not ourselves. And this is why, in the Lutheran Fathers, Paul's discussion of sufficiency comes up so often in what it means to be a pastor. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this would be a great place to end. But really, this is just setting the foundation for what we actually have to face when it comes to the question of the duties and the evaluations of pastors' work. Because remember, our theology uh, undergirds our understanding of the office, and the understanding of theology in our day is changing. It might, is this, has it been 45 minutes? Is it time to stop now? Lord have mercy. Okay, two more minutes. Two more minutes, guys. Modern theology is obsessed with ecclesiology, with studying and understanding what the church is, and it's a narcissism that extends to every corner of the church, liberal and conservative. The article upon which the church stands or falls, it seems, is the doctrine of the church itself. There's something missing in this. It's a roar of a lion with no heart. What drives the the modern church? What's our material principle? The key ingredient is success. And this success is... It comes to us in terms of size and growth. First is the church growth movement. The church growth movement decided one day that growth would be a mark of the church, that social sciences would be helpful at achieving that growth, and in fact, cultural, cult, cultural anthropology is brought to the church as a science to help understand conversion. We who would understand the ways in which the Holy Spirit, through establishing thousands of new communities of the redeemed, is spreading abroad the sweet savor of Christ, must ask why in evangelistic crusades issue in conversions in some populations and not in others. That's Donald McGavern understanding church growth. In other words, we have to use science to understand the doctrine of conversion. Now, Luther taught that conversion was a result of the spirit and the word. Calvin says man's will is involved. The Reformed take God's word out so that conversion is simply a result of the spirit and man's will. And somewhere in there, footnote 23, I've got some quotes from Charles Finney to that effect. It will make you shudder. In, in fact, here, I'll just read you one. You, gotta, you guys got to know this. That men should ever have overlooked the distinction and should have regarded conversion as a work performed exclusively by God is surprising. In other words, Finney says, how could we have ever thought that conversion was God's work? Of course it's our work. Anyway, that's bad. So that is the underpinning of church growth. Now, church growth makes the growth of the church a mark of the church, perhaps the mark of the church. And the result is that the office of pastor is redefined. I'm a couple pages later. The church growth movement redefines the office of pastor, and it's chiefly done by removing the comma from Ephesians 4, where Paul says that Jesus ascended into heaven to give gifts, pastors and teachers, for the building up of the body of Christ, to equip the saints, to do the work of ministry, and to build up the Lord's body. Now... I'm down a couple more pages. Lucky for the pastors and congregations of the Missouri Synod, 
that we've all subscribed to a common understanding of the text. (laughs) Philip Melanchthon writes in The Power and Primacy of the Pope, For wherever the church is, there is the authority command to administer the gospel. Therefore, it's necessary for the church to retain the authority to call, elect, and ordain ministers. And this authority is a gift in which reality is given to the church, which no human power can wrest from the church, as Paul testifies to the Ephesians when he says, He ascended. He gave gifts to men. He enumerates among the gifts specifically belonging to the church, pastors and teachers, and adds that such are given for the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, this passage should settle it for us, but I would be willing to concede the comma of Ephesians 4.12 to the church growth movement if, in fact, they would pay attention to the context and understand ministry like Paul understands it. That we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, the equipping of the saints that the normal church growth pastor is doing is some sort of evangelism equipping to get more people in, to grow the church as a mark of the church. But Paul understands the ministry distinctly in terms of doctrine. And the different theology of the church growth movement gives a different definition of office. Now, maybe let me just say one sentence about the megachurch movement, which is to say that the megachurch movement decides that the church should be huge, and so not only is growth a sign of the church, but size is a mark of the church. And the result of this uh, shift in theology makes the pastor now into a leader, a manager, a CEO, a vision caster. The megachurch movement is completely void of theology, and the thing that comes in to fill the gap is Harvard Business Review. So that the pastoral office is completely turned, changed. Now you can read the evaluating the new marks of the church, and I'll get down to the very last part, which is this. The problem of the church growth movement and the megachurch movement is that they are both movements. In other words, a movement stands in contrast to an institution. An institution is something that is set in place, something that is established, something that stays put. A movement is the precise opposite of that. And while an institution needs a minister, a movement needs a leader. An institution needs a founding document, while a move wait, an institution needs a founding document, while a movement needs a vision. And we are almost completely given over to the understanding of the church as a movement. I've even heard some of our own talk about the Reformation movement or the Christian movement or the confessional movement. No. The church is instituted, like marriage and family. It's set in place by Christ so that there is a place where the Lord will go, where the Lord will be to distribute his gifts. So, our theology informs our understanding of the office. And the right theology is the best theology, and, dear saints, it is our theology. Our confidence in Christ and his promises, that he forgives our sins, that he is with us to the end, that he is coming for us, that he has placed us in this ordered world to receive his gifts and serve our neighbor, beautifully puts the pastor in the midst of the Lord's church for two things, to preach And to administer the sacrament, to teach and baptize and give out the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, 
And the comfort distributed in the office of pastor is also the comfort that we sinners embrace as Jesus serves us. Amen. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Todd Wilkin on what hearers owe their pastor. Kind of look at table of duties, if you would. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. In other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. Angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their, their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention, angels. This is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. 
Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George? Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay, Harold. Where you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slough. Uh, What are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. (laughs) I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to believe that the Bible teaches that, well, the church is not a movement, but that it's an institution, and the institution has offices. Yeah. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, next lecture on today's light, and you have to put that in air quotes, light episode of Fighting for the Faith, is uh, Pastor Todd Wilkin, and uh, the sermon is entitled, What Hearers Owe Their Pastors, taking a look at a table of duties, if you would. Here is Pastor Todd Wilkin. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. All right, good. I'm not going to occupy the pulpit. First of all, another round of applause for Brian Wolfmiller, because I, while he was delivering his, his paper, I sent an email to my producer, Jeff Schwartz, and this is exactly what I said. I said, Wolfie, that's how I refer to him. Do we need to turn me up? Yes. Let me check to see if this thing's working. It says it's on and it has numbers on it. So I'll move the microphone closer. Can you hear me better? No. You're making me do this. I want it on the record. Laptops do not belong in the pulpit. This is what I wrote about Pastor Wolf Miller. I call him Wolfie. He doesn't know that, but it doesn't matter. Wolfie is delivering his ACELC paper. Nothing short of brilliant. Let's give him another round of applause. That was stellar. Do you know the difference between our two seminaries? The real difference between our two seminaries? I mean, there are lots of differences, and, and we ought to rejoice in some of the differences, and some of them are just mythical. But the, the biggest difference, in my opinion, between our two seminaries is one, at one of our seminaries, which I won't name, uh, theology is a series of very complex questions with even more complex answers. And at the other seminary, theology is a series of mostly simple questions and mostly simple answers. The first produces PhDs, and the world needs its PhDs. The second produces pastors, my opinion. I am a very simple-minded person. I like everything boiled down to its, its irreducible complexity. That is something that is 
may be complex, but it's reduced down where it cannot be any more simple than it already is. It's as complex as it needs to be to be what it is, but no more complicated than that. Never, ever any more complicated than that. When a pastor is asked a question in Bible class and his first response is, well, that's a complex question. He's either trying to buy time or he simply doesn't know the answer. And I'm talking about theological, biblical questions. You know, physicists who deal with some of the most complicated ideas in the world, they will all tell you, if they're worth their salt, that if you can't explain it to your grandmother at the kitchen table in 15 minutes, then you don't understand it yourself. That's why I was very glad that you gave me the simplest question of all. It has a very simple answer. It is answered abundantly in scripture and answered abundantly in our confessions. What hearers owe their pastor? It has a three-part answer. There are no subparts to these answers. There are no, this is no outline. It just has a three-part answer straight from the Bible. I will tell you the answer right now. And at that point I can stop talking, but I will, uh, I'll explain. What do hearers owe their pastor? A paycheck, honor, and obedience. We can say nothing more than that. Scripture is quite clear. This is what hearers owe their faithful pastors. They make their living from the gospel. Do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wage. So, Pay him. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Two, honor. That is the kind of honor that we afford to fathers in every other station in life. I'm not particularly fond of calling pastors father, but if you want to call your pastor father, that's fine with me. But our confessions do classify pastors as not fathers of blood, but fathers of office. That's what Luther says in the large catechism. And not civil fathers like dad or the governor or the president or the policeman, but spiritual fathers. But like all fathers, they are owed honor. Now this means you don't have to like them. If they are your uh, father by blood, you are commanded to love them. But you do owe them the honor of the office. And then that third part, obedience. This is the one that all of us have a hard time with because the old Adam in us is naturally rebellious, not obedient. But scripture is quite clear that what we owe our fathers in faith, our pastors, is obedience. So let's get into some of that. I love being a Lutheran. You want to know why? For two reasons. Well, there's lots of reasons. But, but the, the first reason I always say is I do not have to ignore or explain away a single syllable of Scripture to be a Lutheran. I can take it all. Now, I might not understand it all, but I do not have to ignore or explain away a single syllable of Scripture. And I'm convinced that every other confession of faith in Christendom has to one degree or another 
either ignore or explain away lots of syllables of Scripture to be what they are. Lutherans don't. The other thing I love about being a Lutheran is no matter what the question is, we never need to go any further than Scripture and our confession to answer it. If the answer lies beyond that, then, well, it's either a, it's either a question that uh, we have no business answering merely as Christians, maybe within our vocation. So a scientist can tell me that at sea level, water is supposed to boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. I won't find that in the Bible, and I won't find that in the confessions. It's a useful piece of knowledge, but I have no business answering that question as a pastor. As a father? Yes, of course. If someone wants to know how hot does water have to be before it begins to boil at room temperature, I can say, well, I know as a father, but as a pastor, it's an irrelevant question. I never need to go beyond Scripture and our confessions to answer any question. If the answer isn't there, I have no business giving it as a pastor. The small catechism. We'll circle back around to uh, Scripture because as Lutherans, we read Scripture in light of the confessions. Something, by the way, that has just been forgotten in the last generation or so of, of Lutherans. So we start with the small catechism where every Christian child learns to answer this question. What does it mean when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Every little child should know this, right? And Luther's answer to this has nothing to do with holiness or days or days of the week. Have you ever noticed that? He just skips over all the Sabbath stuff. He skips over everything and says the answer to the question, what does that mean, is we should fear and love God so that we may not despise preaching of his word. He jumps straight to Sunday morning. But hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. That is the root of every answer to the question, what do hearers owe their pastors? That question has to be answered first and foremost, and that's why I wanted to avoid the pulpit, but I'm in it nonetheless because of technology. Technology messes up the church so bad. Technology has forced me into the pulpit. The answer to the question starts right here. Preacher, hearer. I love the way Luther, who is a man of, of almost historic, no, really truly historic genius and intellect, can take something that could be made so complicated by a seminary faculty and just says, don't despise preaching. Gladly hear and learn it. If that's the only answer you ever gave to someone who says, well, what do hearers owe their pastors? That would be a good enough answer. Might not get the pastor paid, but it still would have people listening to the word of God. The large catechism. This is now under the uh, same commandment. Luther writes, know therefore that you must be concerned not only about hearing, 
but also about learning and retaining it in memory. And do not think that it is optional with you or of no great importance, but that it is God's commandment who will require it of you who have heard, learned, and honored his word. Here again, we're talking about the intimate connection between the pastor and the preaching of the word and the word itself. Luther goes on, likewise those fastidious spirits who are to be reproved when, having heard a sermon or two, they find it tedious and dull, thinking that they know it all well enough and need no more instruction. For just that is the sin which has hitherto reckoned among us mortal sins, called torpor, satiety, a malignant, dangerous plague with which the evil devil bewitches and deceives the hearts of many that he may surprise us and secretly withdraw God's word from us. What is Luther saying there? He says it's a mortal sin. A sin that will rob you of your salvation if you get bored with your pastor's preaching. Now, to be bored is one thing. The devil might have his little taloned toe just in the door. But when he convinces you that you ought to be bored with your pastor's faithful preaching, mortal sin, it will send you to hell. Because, as Luther says, that's the means by which the devil will secretly take all of God's word away from you. Which is precisely what the devil wants to do all the time. The table of duties at the end of the catechism deals with four passages. The first, I'll I'll read the first two, but we're going to deal with the second two. Under the heading of, not surprisingly, what the hearer owes their pastors. First, it's 1 Corinthians 9. This has to do with paychecks. Even so, the Lord hath ordained that he which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That means, in other words, the man who preaches ought to be paid for it. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, a very wise pastor with whom I disagree on many other things once taught me that when you take the offering in church on Sunday morning... Don't get all platonic and ethereal and warm and fuzzy about it. Now we bring our our loving offerings to God to support his work in the world or something like that. Why do you gather an offering on Sunday morning? To pay your pastor. Also to provide lights, building, heat, all of those other things. But you know, a church can pay its bills and keep the heat on and the lights on on Sunday morning, but if they have no pastor, they are derelict in their responsibility. And they are in danger of forfeiting the name church. The first and foremost reason you offer your offerings or we gather our offerings is to pay the pastor. That's not me. That's the Bible. The other passage, of course, that has to deal with this 
is Galatians 6, 6 that Luther quotes, let him who is taught in the word communicate, that's, I think, uh, that old koinonia word that's now become an official trademark of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Let him who is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. That is, in our parlance, let him who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. So pay your pastors. I think our pastors ought to be paid well. And I think it is um, something of which the church, every congregation and the church at large ought to repent that we don't do it. It, we, we pay for what we value, don't we? And in every other realm of life, we say, well, you get what you pay for. I'm trying to buy a used truck. And I go in with completely unreasonable expectations. I'm kind of like the average Lutheran Church, Missouri, Synod congregation. I want a truck that's, that's got less than 200,000 miles on it that will drive and last me for the next six years without any major expenses. And I want it, I want it for $2,500. And the, one guy after another at the used car places have said, look, I pay for it, and I don't pay that much for it. And then I put at least $2,000 into it before I put it on my lot. So um, you're asking me to take a loss. I took one of these trucks to my mechanic. He said, don't buy it. It's not worth it. I said, okay. Because in the strange world of, of Wilkin, um, in the level of trust that I exercise with people, you know, I trust my wife implicitly with my life, and somewhere down the line, I trust the used car salesman. But somewhere between the two is my mechanic. He doesn't rise to the level of my wife, although he's a very good mechanic. And he told me the other day, look, you're going to get what you're willing to pay for. Now, why don't we say that about our preachers? And why is it that when we persist in this attitude that we are going to shortchange our pastors? Let's uh, piously shortchange our pastors with every good intention of making a man out of them or something like that. I don't know what we're doing. Does it surprise you? that we have so many poor pastors, and I'm not talking about financially poor pastors. I'm talking about poor pastors, bad pastors. And I imagine God sits up in heaven occasionally and says, you get what you pay for. But even the most humble But faithful pastor deserves to be well paid. We say, we confess a lot by how much we pay our pastors. Why should a district president be well paid? And there are varying degrees of being well paid out there. Why should a district president, who is nothing more than a stable boy, 
the guy who we pay to go in and muck out the stalls all day long. Why should he be better paid than a pastor whom we have called to handle the mysteries of God? That's about as upside down as it gets. I don't know. I came from Texas, and where I come from, uh, you don't pay stable boys that much. It doesn't take a lot of brains to do what they do. The other two passages that Luther deals with here are the ones that I wanted to focus on. The first one from 1 Timothy. And this has to do with honor. But he also puts it in financial terms. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and teaching. For scripture says, and he quotes it again, you shall not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now here Paul is talking about two things at the same time. One is that they ought to make their living from the gospel, but two that they are worthy of what he calls this double honor. This, uh, it's a, a dipless temes, a double honor. And he says that they ought to be counted worthy of it. Not just given to, not, not given to as a gift, but they ought to be considered worth the double honor. This is not as much about what we pay our pastors uh, as it is about how much we value our pastors. Let him be considered worthy of a double honor. Now, there are a lot of congregations out there that can't pay their pastors a double honor, but they still consider him worthy of it. That's a difference between what you can pay and what you want to pay, right? He talks about these elders that rule well. It's the the well-ruling elders. And the word that he uses here for ruling is um, to oversee, to stand over and guard, watch, protect, a watchman. The other passage, Hebrews 13, 17 And this is the one that has to do with the third part, obedience. Obey them that rule over you. And just in case you missed it, he says, and submit yourselves. For they watch over your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, it's interesting, the word he uses there for obey and the word that he uses there for submit are two very particular Greek words. The obey one actually means to be persuaded. It's a passive idea. And it only means by extension to obey, to listen to and to heed and to be persuaded and to obey. It's a passive idea. It's not a passive verb. It's a passive idea. And the same is true of this other word about submission. 
It doesn't mean, like so many words in the Greek, to submit yourself, but it means to yield. To yield to, therefore to submit. As much trouble as we have with paying our pastors, as we ought to, according to the Lord's command. I mean, there Paul is telling Timothy that God gave that command about oxen treading out grain in anticipation of pastors preaching the word. And as much trouble as we have with honoring our pastors as we ought to, that is valuing them. What we really have trouble with is obedience. Paying your pastor is easy. You just uh, have a voters assembly and get enough people to support raising his salary and then someone who's willing to actually, with fear and trembling, sign the check every month. That's easy. You can fake honor. People do it all the time. But obedience cannot be faked. Because obedience always is linked directly to God and to his word. But these ideas, as I said before, are are passive ideas. To, To be persuaded and to yield. And I think in this passage... From Hebrews, we have the the Lutheran insight about what hearers owe their pastor. The answer is simple a paycheck, honor, obedience. But the unique insight in this Hebrews passage that Luther quotes in the Table of Duties is that all of this is to be rendered when we regard the pastor, my pastor, your pastor, As something that we receive. Rather than someone to whom we give, the pastor is first and foremost a gift to his people. Pastor Wolf Miller had some great insights on the changing definition of the pastoral office, and I think they're all true. I would add to his that wherever you find a pastor dishonored, poorly paid, wherever you find a pastor being, uh, who preaches the word faithfully, being disobeyed in those things pertaining to God's word, wherever you find a pastor being, in the terms of your conference, being unbiblically Removed. At the very root of that is a people, a congregation, a district president, maybe even the pastor himself. Who do not regard the pastoral office and the preaching of God's word as God's gift, gracious gift to his people. Again, I'm a simple-minded person. Who 
here has children that they would not, no matter how much trouble and how much expense your children have put you to throughout their life, kids mess up your life, don't they? They come in and they're so clever. They come in all cute and sweet and it's all a ruse. I promised Pastor Wolf Miller that I would use at least one illustration involving cats. It's the same way. What do you call a stray kitten that you feed? Your cat. And they all grow up to be cats. And cats have one virtue. They're very unintelligent creatures. They're just like somewhere between jellyfish and, and I don't know, maybe uh, goldfish. They're not smart. I love them. But they're not smart animals. They're pure instinct. Dogs, on the other hand, are, are highly intelligent creatures. And dogs know exactly what they're doing all the time. And the only thing they're doing all the time is trying to get you to give them some food. And they know exactly what to do with you every single time. Cats, it's just instinctual. That God would make this thing that is so beautiful, so soft. So uh, when they purr, it's like they have a, 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 a main line into your, uh, whatever is the seat of your emotions. But they are just wicked, evil creatures. <laughs> I recently read a book by a the uh, medical examiner in in New York City. I don't know if any of you have read this book called Stiff. It's a fantastic book. Female medical examiner who did about a two year stint in the New York morgue. And at, at, in a, a side in the book that I found particularly humorous, she said, um, "A dog." If you die in your apartment in Manhattan, will stay by your corpse for weeks, starve itself to death, stay by your corpse for weeks until someone discovers your body. A cat, if you die in your apartment in Manhattan, will start eating you immediately. And she said, and this is somewhat grotesque, she said, I've seen it more times than I care to remember. Dear old grandmother, with her sweet, loving cat, that was just waiting for her to die. Our children are a little bit like this, although I wouldn't, I would never have any of my children put to sleep. The cats I contemplated on a regular basis. They come into our lives, they mess up your life, don't they? Sure they do. And they keep messing it up. Even when you get them kind of self-cleaning and able to do things on their own, they find a way of coming back in and costing you money and messing up your life. And they do it with all the good intentions. And every time you say never again, and then every time when it is again, you, you concede. And that is exactly how God wants it to be. I have a father who, who never lent me a penny 
but he gave me a lot of money. I don't even want to count it up over the years. I've never owed my dad anything because everything he ever gave me, and he gave me a lot, he gave me as a gift, no strings attached, never any thought on his part. And eventually, when I figured out what he was up to, no longer any thought on my part about paying it back. If he put it into my hand, it was, it's yours. And I have caused him a lot of trouble over the years. But you know, if you were to ask my dad, who has five sons, and two of them continued to mooch off of him for a long, long time, cutting into his retirement, probably pretty severely. If you were to ask my dad if his boys, if any of his boys weren't a gift of God, he would laugh. The most troublesome child in the world we still receive as a gift from God. We might not understand what we're supposed to do with it, but this child is a gift. And we should regard our pastors exactly the same way. They cost a lot of money. They sometimes make a lot of trouble. They make messes. You have to clean up after them sometimes. Sometimes they are fantastic, faithful, good, lovable men. Sometimes they're hard to get along with. And sometimes they make trouble for themselves. But every single one of them is still a gift from God to his people, to the church. Every single one. God makes no mistakes He does not call a man into the ministry. He will not call a man into the ministry unless he is prepared to give that man as a gift to the church. That man may do many things that contradict God's will, but God has still given him as a gift to the church. When a man ceases to see himself as God's gift to the church to do God's will, then God's gift may be for the church to remove him. That's also a gift. But I think if we understood our pastors to be part of God's gracious giving to us in Jesus Christ, then we'd have less trouble parting with money at paycheck time. We would be able to honor them even though we sometimes can't understand them. And obey them because we realize that we are not, in fact, obeying men, but God. How's my time? Anybody? Hmm? Thank you. Some final words from the large catechism, the fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother, where Luther, in his brilliance, brings it all together. He's talked about all kinds of fathers in the world, and Luther is very, he's a law and order kind of guy. Have you ever read Luther on the fourth commandment? I mean, he views the hangman like, I can picture Luther going to the gallows whenever they would hang criminals and just be like patting the hangman on the back. Good job today. 
That was some hanging you did. And then he turns to the subject of spiritual fathers. He says, besides these, there are yet spiritual fathers, not like those in the papacy who have indeed had themselves called thus, but have performed no function of what Luther calls the paternal office. Pastors, please remember that whether your people call you pastor or preacher or reverend or father, you occupy the paternal office. These are your children. Luther says, For those who are only called spiritual fathers who govern and guide us by the word of God. That's the definition of a spiritual father. To govern and guide by the word of God. St. Paul boasts of his fatherhood in 1 Corinthians 4, where he says, In Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, since they are fathers, they are entitled to their honor, even above all others. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Honor to the pastor over honor to any other father of blood or office that you have. But here it is bestowed least. That is this honor. For the way which the world knows for honoring them is to drive them out of the country and to grudge them a piece of bread. And in short, they must be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, as the filth of the world and everybody's refuse and foot rag. He's bemoaning the fact that faithful preachers are not honored not even equal to civil magistrates, but less than. Yet there is a need that this also be urged upon the populace, that those who would be Christians are under the obligation in the sight of God to esteem them worthy of double honor, we've heard that before, who ministers to their souls, that they deal with them and provide for them. See, Luther read my paper. For that, and this is... When Luther starts talking about this stuff, he, start, he really starts making big promises. For that God is willing to add to you sufficient blessings and will not let you come to want. He says, other, in other words, when you pay your pastor, don't worry, God will pay you. He'll make sure that you have what you have, precisely so. You can make sure your pastor has what he needs. But in this manner, everyone refuses and resists, and all are afraid that they will perish from bodily want and cannot now support one respectable preacher, where formerly they filled ten fat paunches, talking about the priests. In this, we also deserve that God would deprive of us of, of, us of his word and blessing, and again allow preachers to rise full of lies to lead us again to the devil. And in addition, to drain our sweat and blood. What is Luther saying there? You know, God's judgment on people who will not receive their pastors as a gift is to take the gift away. And to give you not a gift but a curse, wearing a clerical collar. Or, more often than not in the Lutheran Church, Missouri, scented a designer t-shirt. But those who keep in God's sight, his will and commandment, have the promise that everything which they bestow upon temporal and spiritual fathers and whatever they do to honor them shall be richly recompensed to them so that they shall all have not only bread, clothing, money for a year or two, 
but long life support peace and shall be eternally rich and blessed. Therefore, only do what is your duty and let God take care of how he is to support you and provide you sufficiently, since he has promised it and has never yet lied He will not be found lying to you. And then I love the way Luther ends this little part on honoring and paying and obeying pastors. He says, this ought to indeed encourage us and give us hearts that would melt in pleasure and love toward those whom we owe honor so that we would raise our hands and joyfully thank God who has given us such promises And then he says very oddly, for which we ought to run to the remotest parts of India. (laughs) I guess he thought that was about as far as you could run. What's he saying? He's saying, first of all, if hearers give to pastors what they owe them in Christ Jesus, paycheck, honor, obedience, God will repay you. In this life and in the life to come, and if we received pastors thus as these gifts, we would be so anxious to have such a pastor that we would be willing to run to the remotest parts of India to find him. I love Luther's optimism, especially when you consider the fact that he wrote this when most of the pastors in the Reformation were really, really stupid and would never have graduated from any seminary, one or the other, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and hardly knew their own doctrine. He was writing this to teach pastors the basic catechetical doctrines. And when the people were, as he often said, so fat and lazy and insolent and disobedient that Luther often would pray that God would send judgment upon them, his optimism shines through. Because he understood that, you know, here's Luther in a church full of really, really bad pastors and worse people saying, God has given us a gift, let us receive it. Let's receive it with thanksgiving, with honor, with obedience. Thank you. All right, so what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The final lecture that we'll be playing from uh, Pastor Dan Bremer on deposing a, a pastor, biblical and unbiblical reasons. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. 
Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're back. Hours have no meaning today. Yeah, we're well into hour two. Before this uh, lecture is over, I think we'll be into hour three. Right, this is the place where we normally play our sermon review music, and you know, it, well, we're not doing that today. So, uh, we're gonna here's the final lecture that we're gonna be listening to from the Association of Confessing Evangelical Lutheran Congregations regarding the office of the Holy Ministry, and we're gonna be listening to Pastor Dan Bremer's uh, lecture entitled "Deposing a Pastor: Biblical and Unbiblical Reasons." Here we go. Back in uh, October. I think it was October. Uh, he's not here, so. Jim Geyer called me up and said, Dan, we've had so-and-so give papers. Why don't you give a paper? And I said, I suppose. Here I am. I took it to my, my Bible class. And I said, I'm, I'm going to be giving a paper in February at the ACLC conference. And one of the laymen asked, you know, what's, what's it on? And I said, my title is a blueprint for how you can get rid of me. And I suppose going through all the lists and the reasons of deposing a pastor, you know, they'll get some ideas. A pastor finishes up a service and has gone to the entrance of the church, shaking the hands of those coming out of the service. A little boy comes up to him and hands him a $5 bill. The pastor, a bit surprised, asks the little boy, why the gracious gift? The boy blurts out, I just wanted to help, pastor. My dad says, you're the poorest pastor we've ever had. One may think that's a joke. Well, it, it is a joke. But it is also a reality common in our beloved LCMS. Congregations call a pastor, install a pastor, and before long they begin to have second thoughts whether he should remain their pastor. It is usually not based on his preaching, not based on whether he is delivering the gifts of God, but some other side issue. A family he has upset, a person he has angered, a misstep, a blunder, 
in doing what he's called to do. Except for the boy who wants to do all he can to help his poor pastor out, this scenario is played out in congregation after congregation. People don't like their pastor, and they begin to plot how to get rid of him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if congregations who feel this way about their pastor would just give him a lot of money, like this little boy? You know, just a truck back up, beep, 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 and a truckload of cash pour in. At least his wife, at least his wife would be happy. Sadly, it often turns out, though, to be a totally different scenario. You know, coming out of the seminary, the pastor wanted to be faithful, and here he is in turmoil. Removal of a pastor for biblical reasons is one thing, but when those reasons go beyond the Holy Word, then that's something altogether different. That's sinful and should stop. When a pastor finishes his education, and takes a call into the parish. He sets a day to stand before his congregation and take some vows, make some vows. Um, I did a little research on this, and the vows have changed over the years. Uh, I, was, I was actually ordained using TLH vows, or the agenda for TLH. Uh, and I was looking at the LSB version, and, and the first question used to be, do you hold to the, Sinat or to the uh, uh, Holy Scriptures? Now it is, do you acknowledge that the Lord has called you through his church in the ministry of word and sacrament? And uh, it seems a bit subjective to me and not the objective way we used to do it, but the vow is given, and the pastor announces, I do. Of course, what follows is important as well. Pastors are asked to accept the Holy Scriptures, accept the confessions, the creeds, the unaltered Augsburg Confession, and of course the remainder of the symbolic books of the Lutheran Church, to which a, a, every pastor you know, responds in the affirmative. Finally, the, the candidate is asked, will you honor and adorn the, holy, the office of the holy ministry with a holy life? Will you be diligent in the study of Holy Scriptures and the confessions? And will you be uh, constant in prayer for those under your pastoral care? And he responds, I will, the Lord helping me through the power and grace of his Holy Spirit. These, are, these uh, questions are asked the pastor after their time of instruction, and they're made, which you know, is a whole other uh, uh, paper, I suppose, on what goes on now with the normal way uh, that we go through instruction. These vows are made with the understanding that the pastor in his preaching the word, administering the sacraments, will be faithful to these vows. What's more, he believes the congregation will listen and be obedient to the word that he is proclaiming. The agenda reads in asking the congregation, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, so-and-so has been called to be a pastor, in the, and they give the name of the congregation. I ask you now, in the presence of God, will you receive him, show him that love, honor, and obedience in the Lord that you owe to the shepherd and teacher placed over you by your Lord Jesus Christ? And will you support him by your gifts and fervent prayer? And the congregation responds, we will, with the help of God. Now, I bring this up for one reason. Pastors make these vows, followed by the congregation making their vow, 
and the two, having been joined together by God's divine call, fulfill these vows in the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacrament, and uh, in, in word and truth and purity, and for the congregation in listening and receiving that word that is preached. It is a union made in heaven. This is how it is supposed to be. But obviously for some, this is not the case. I don't recall in the early years of my ministry, uh, which is going on 30, 31, I believe, this year, that the issue we are addressing was all that common. Uh, to be more surprised, it, it may have been mentioned when, you know, obviously somebody was going through problems, but certainly not on a regular basis. Of course, I could have been asleep that day at the seminary, or I could have skipped class and thought it more important to play golf which I happened to do a couple times. Seriously, it's very unlikely I missed an important subject like this that makes for a sad commentary on what is happening today in congregations and to pastors in their ministry. Uh, more and more pastors are being removed from their call from God and obviously many for unbiblical reasons. What is more, I had never heard of the word deposal, I mean, as it applied to pastors until I read the document, The Divine Deposal Dismissal of Ministers of Word and Sacrament, a paper written that's been mentioned in this, uh, in this gathering this, uh, the, yesterday. By Dr. He wrote, Dr. Wilsones wrote it. The first edition was in 1992, and it has been since revised. Here I commend to you the fine work done by our next speaker, Pastor Robert Mays, uh, who wrote a critique of this paper in 2012 for the Nebraska Lutherans for Confessional Study Group. Uh, what's more, Soane's paper uh, is the blueprint by used by district presidents and congregations in removing their pastor from service. Pastor Scott Porath, vice president of the Nebraska district, writes, and he's, he's here too, uh, from my experience in the Nebraska district, it appears that this divine deposal dismissal document is being used as a playbook when dealing with pastor-congregation conflicts. Yes, pastors are being deposed, dismissed, and it seems left and right. That is not an exaggeration. Some for biblical reasons, uh, many for unbiblical ones. In my experience, it happens quite quickly. An issue, most often, often a perceived one, arises and boom, the pastor is being asked to leave or resign his position. Today, my task is to review the biblical reasons pastors may be removed from the office, as well as try and get a handle on unbiblical ones, which, as one would surmise, is like getting a firm grip on jello. Before we delve into the reasons for deposal, dismissal, let's review some basic thoughts regarding the office of the Holy Ministry. Uh, Pastor Bruce Lay, a current member of the ACLC board, in a recent email shared an excellent overview of the pastoral office, and I told him he was going to hear it again. He writes, Christ established the office of the ministry in the church and for the church, his bride, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ's ultimate purpose in establishing the office is to serve as his voice, hands, and feet 
in order that his bride should be holy and without blemish. We know and acknowledge, of course, that only the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, and thus it is Christ's accomplished work in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension which did the heavy lifting. Even so, in a sense, not wholly separated from John the Baptist's role as Jesus, at Jesus' baptism to fulfill all righteousness, the pastor is placed in the office to carry out his role through which Christ's bride is sanctified and set apart and cleansed with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, holy and without blemish. In a concise way, Pastor Lay has given us the very biblical and godly purpose as to why pastors exist and why God has called them into this holy office. He goes on to say, faithful pastors then are essential to the triune God's work on earth, not so much because he needs them on his part, but because his pilgrims and sojourners on earth need the services provided through the elders who rule well, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. Why? Because the triune God has bound his church to his rightly proclaimed word as the means by which he delivers pilgrims and sojourners out of their sin into eternal life with him. Uh, this essential correlation between God, pastors, people, and the word is so important that St. Paul sets forth two admonitions in the next two verses which are given as a safeguard to prevent wrongful mistreatment of God's instruments. For the scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox while it, is tre while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Simply put, a pastor is one who is called by God to do what God has called him to do. He is to give out the gifts that God has secured through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Our confessions say it this way. So that we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. Through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given. He works faith where and when he pleases, or where and when it pleases God, in, who, in those who hear the good news, that God justifies those who believe that they are received into, the great, into grace for Christ's sake. This happens not through our own merits, but for Christ's sake. The holy office of the ministry was instituted by God so that God's people would receive the very gifts of God. These gifts come to us through God's only Son, who gave his life that we may be one with the Father. To put it another way, the office of the holy ministry is all about delivering the forgiveness of sins to those who need and desire that forgiveness. This cannot be overstated. Every time a pastor steps into the pulpit, this should be the reason he is there and the goal of his sermon. To think that God, who desires all to have this forgiveness, would want anyone to, uh, not to receive it, well, is beyond the heart and mind of God. It should be, to all Christians, unthinkable. Also, God wants all men, including pastors, if they have sinned in their dealings with their congregation, to know his forgiveness and the eternal life that comes with that forgiveness, just as he desires all people of all congregations to know that forgiveness. I bring this up because there may be some who believe that their pastor may not be one who deserves our Lord's forgiveness.
Every pastor should know that when he sins, even in this holy office, our Lord's forgiveness is his. It is unthinkable that men, sinful men who make mistakes, should not be offered the same grace that God wants all men to have. Here I cite one example from Scripture, although there are others. King David, from whom the holy seed of our Lord would pass, was confronted with both the sin of murder and adultery by Nathan the prophet. Would a congregation ever call such a man to be their shepherd? Of course not. He wouldn't even get on the congregation's pre-call list. Everyone knows this story, but I want to make sure you know what's going on. King David had sinned against God. God was not happy. He sent Nathan, his prophet, to speak his law, his condemning, damning law. Nathan did so knowing that his life may be in danger for accusing the king. After a subtle attempt to get David to figure out the problem, you know, with the story of the neighbor and his sheep, he finally lays it on the line. You are the man, said Nathan. David was hit right between the eyes with God's law. David had sinned. David had committed adultery. David had murdered Uriah. What will God do? Will he throw him out of office? Will he offer him a one-month severance package and tell him that the Israel health plan would only be continued to the next month? Would David have to leave the palace immediately in shame? No. By God's direction, Nathan confronts David with his sin, and David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. David turns, Nathan turns to David, and he says, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This cannot be overstated. The Lord forgave David completely. It is understood that David received consequences for his actions, and yes, they were severe. His son died, but David was absolved and was not removed from God's holy office. What current, as I asked, what current congregation would want David as its pastor? None, that's many. Yet God saw fit to retain his servant in the office to which he had been called. Could it possibly be that God in his infinite wisdom, wisdom far beyond man's, has a better idea when it comes to dealing with those who sin against him? To be blunt, the God way would be for the pastor to be confronted with his sin, given the opportunity to repent and receive absolution, rather than just be removed from office. I know this is not how the modern Christian thinks, but this is God's way of dealing with the sinner, even if that sinner is a pastor. The same law and gospel applied to David should be applied to all. Let me also add that this is the same way that the pastor is to deal with a sinful congregation. Law and gospel should always be applied to the pastor and the congregation. Now what if David doesn't repent of his sin? What if the pastor doesn't repent, doesn't confess? Well, there are biblical reasons for dismissing a pastor. In 2003, the CTCR wrote the document on the divine call, and the committee wrote, The church has traditionally laid down two grounds for deposing pastors and other servants of the word, persistent teaching of false doctrine and leading of scandalous and offensive life. Persistent teaching of false doctrine undermines the foundation of the faith 
A scandalous life leads people to blaspheme God's name. These causes not only provide the grounds for removing a man from service in the congregation, but they also render him ineligible for receiving any subsequent call to another congregation or place of service. He is no longer in the office of the public ministry. These reasons presume that the pastor has undermined the ministry of the word and in biblical terms is no longer apt to teach and above reproach. Most would agree that this, with the CTCR report regarding the traditionally held reasons for removing a pastor from office. If one is preaching, teaching false doctrine, and refuses to repent, that is for God to remove him from that office. Pastor Porath wrote in his paper in the first ACLC conference, ACELC conference, since the Lord has instituted the office of the holy ministry and places his servants in that office so that people might receive justifying faith, the Lord must remove the unfaithful servant for the sake of his people. False doctrine is determined by God and his holy word. If a pastor is to be removed for persistent false doctrine, then God will remove him according to his word. Yes, it is that simple. For the life of me, I have not heard of a pastor being removed for preaching false doctrine until yesterday. In fact, when I was at Symposia, I took upon myself to take a, a, a poll, a survey, and I asked a bunch of pastors that, obviously a bunch of pastors were there, I asked them, have you ever heard of anyone being removed for false doctrine? And, and one guy said, yeah, I think I did, but I can't tell you who it was. And I can't tell you when it was. I said, well, okay. But no one else had ever heard of anyone removed from Fox. And then I got to thinking about 1974 in the walkout. And I confirmed this. I talked to uh, Pastor Preuss yesterday. And I said, I said, it is my understanding and my recollection, I, I suppose I could have easily looked it up, that none of the professors that had been accused of false doctrine were ever removed for false doctrine. And he said, you're right. They were removed for various reasons. Uh, a number of them were removed by uh, just simply letting their contract run out. Uh, and they had reached retirement age and they would move on. And some, because of dereliction of duty, when they took that little trip off the campus uh, to have their little soiree in the park across the street and then returned, and they, they were removed for dereliction of duty. No pastor, no pastor was removed for false doctrine. Uh, pastor Preuss also reminded me of the gentleman who was removed. Paul Brecher was removed. Gosh, that has been 20, uh, Pastor Preuss here, 20-something years ago, 30-something years ago. It's been a while since that, that has taken place. Um, false doctrine, however, is rampant in our synod. For example, Dr. Matthew Becker, an open advocate for women's ordination, which you've been hearing about, preaches false doctrine. He wrote once, for the sake of the gospel and the mission of the church, the contemporary LCMS ought to allow qualified women and men to serve as pastors and theologians. The scriptures do not clearly prohibit women from serving in these offices. More importantly, the valid proclamation of the gospel and its effectiveness do not depend on the gender of the pastor. Prohibiting women from serving as pastors and theologians within Western 
egalitarian societies and is an unnecessary obstacle in the church's mission. Such prohibition should be abolished. Uh, Dr. Becker has advocated this position for years and is clearly unrepentant. He still remains on the roster of the LCMS. Why? Well, recently a dispute resolution panel uh, representing the Northwest District has decided there's no reason for false doctrine charges to be brought against him. And I, I don't, when we use the word exonerated, I don't think that was the word that has been applied. I think what they essentially said is that, is that he should be allowed to, because he's a professor and a doctor of the church, he should be allowed to question the doctrines of the church. And, uh, hmm. The, the case with Dr. Barron, I found this on, uh, if any of you ever go on ALPB, the, what's, what's the letter stand for? Uh, the, yeah, whatever. Um, I don't spend a lot of time there, but uh, if you want, you can, I mean, Becker writes on that all the time. But I, I couldn't find it the second time. I found it once in, in doing research on this paper that he had said, you know, not only did I do that in the classroom and out in the open, but I preached it, that I do it in my congregation where I preach, that I speak about this. So this is not just a professor uh, being allowed to question you know, what the church teaches. This is someone who advocates uh, for this position. Uh, he recently wrote, I am grateful for the following bylaw in the LCMS. Uh, notice, he's not grateful for the word of God, but for the bylaws. Whether made by the district president or a referral panel, if the determination is not to initiate formal proceedings, the district president shall in writing so inform the accuser. Any other district president involved and the involved member which shall terminate the matter. The matter of the case against my teaching was terminated by three LCMS circuit counselors from the Northwest District. They concluded that it is perfectly acceptable for an LCMS pastor to make a public argument in favor of the ordination of women to the pastoral office and that such a public argument is not grounds for expulsion from, from the roster of the pastors of the LCMS. This is an important precedent, it seems to me. I would agree. It is an important precedent, uh, one that goes against the word of God. In response to this whole sordid matter, uh, Pastor Tim Rosso was recently said that many uh, said what many know to be true. When you speak against the word of God, you are speaking as one in place of God. Um, he said the uh, he wrote in uh, on Brother John the Steadfast. The exoneration of Matthew Baker breaks the simple bond of peace created by the Holy Spirit that Walther identifies as the mark and goal of the evangelical congregation. The Holy Spirit creates the church through the word he inspired. Matthew Becker, District President Lineman, and the three circuit counselors who exonerated him have sinned against the Holy Spirit by denying the simple truth of his word. To also quote Yogi Baird, it is deja vu all over again. The sin of Adam and Eve in their response to the devil's did God really say has struck again. This issue with Dr. Becker has been going on for years, and now it appears it will fester for many more. The saga, though, continues. President Matthew Harrison, or 
Matthew Harrison, president of the LCMS and pastor at Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri, has officially made a comment regarding this matter. He recently shared it on his Facebook page and on his LCMS blog that Dr. Becker speaks false doctrine. You've heard the comment. I won't reread it. Uh, excellent comment. The ACLC has commented on it uh, in doing so. And the letter that, if you haven't read it, or please do, calls for uh, all our leaders to, uh, to support what President Harrison has written. We have heard, though, this talk before from our president. But now it comes without the emotional charge of children being killed in a classroom. In other words, President Harrison needs to back his words with actions in accordance with the word of God. Of course, ACLC has brought forth the, doc- the Becker matter uh, of false doctrine in its era document uh, covering the order of creation. But of course, it could have easily been placed under the era document entitled Pure Doctrine. Uh, Pastor Rosso, in his piece entitled Three Simple Steps to Move Forward with the Matthew Becker Case, has some suggestions for President Harrison. President Harrison needs to begin the process of expelling President Linneman from the LCMS for allowing a false teacher in his district. If that fails, then President Harrison needs to call a special synodical convention to consider the expulsion of a false teacher. If that fails, and Harrison has not yet left the Senate, as he said he would if he cannot expel such a false teacher from its midst, or if steps one and two continue through the summer of 2016, then the regular convention needs to change the procedure for expulsion. What will happen next is anyone's guess. The ACLC believes that President Pastor Harrison does have the power to end this very soon. He, like all pastors, like all God's people, has the power of God's word and its truth. When one of our own speaks against the truth of God's word, one must take a stand and do what is right. Let the word have its way. If it means binding that person in his sin, so be it. If it means expelling him from sin, so be it. God has spoken. The ACLC will stand behind Pastor Harrison, as long as he does what God has called him to do, speak the word of God, the damning and forgiving word of God. It should, however, be the desire of every pastor, every layman for that matter, that Dr. Becker be confronted with his sin, repent of it, just as King David did. Maybe, just maybe, the one to do that is uh, Pastor Harrison and prayerfully Dr. Becker will listen to what God says through his called servant and, like David, repent. This would speak volumes to what the LCMS stands for and what would be in keeping with God's word and pleasing to him. I have to admit that the Matthew Becker incident is huge and may very well stand as the catalyst that unites our synod once again under God's word and our confessions. However, when talking about false doctrine— and its appearance in our synod, I want to raise an even bigger issue. It is even more prevalent than women's ordination. First, a little history. Back in 1996, at a winkle of the Grand Island Circuit, my, my circuit, uh, this comment was made by one of, its, uh, one of our pastors. The hardest thing I do as a pastor is preach the law without condemning anyone. I laughed out loud at the pastor because the pastor was joking. It had to be a joke. It wasn't a joke. 
Today in our Senate, preaching the third use of the law has replaced the gospel in far too many sermons. You may have heard one of these sermons, and possibly, like me, have heard many. In the best scenario, the pastor begins with a a little second use of the law, the mirror law. Then he goes into a little gospel, if any, only to get to his real point of the sermon, telling the people what to do and how to be a better Christian. In many of these sermons, there is little to no mention of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, which is in total his salvific work. In the words of Pastor Clint Poppy, president of the LCLC, Jesus isn't getting bloody. The confessions are clear about the law in that it always accuses, lex semper accuse it. It always kills. The gospel, on the other hand, is God's only answer for sin and death alone, and it alone offers life and salvation. If there is a persistent false doctrine being proclaimed in our Senate, this is it. And for the most part, it goes without mention, even by many who know it to be false. Why? I have no idea. False doctrine is and always will be our greatest problem. The only way to deal with it is to apply the truth of God's word and let that word have its law gospel way with us. This is why the ACLC is needed as we support in, in its call for all to return to the truth of God's word. Now, what if a pastor is caught in the sin of a scandalous or offensive life? Scripture is clear that the pastor is to be the husband of one wife. St. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Could it be any clearer than what our Lord has said through his apostle? Many, however, fall for Satan's temptation and break their marriage vows in one way or another. This occurs with single pastors as well. Obviously, to break one's vow to one's wife reflects on how the pastor will lead his congregation. It will also reflect on his fidelity to the Lord. In my experience, when this occurs, the DP will come in and force the pastor to resign his call. He may be asked to go to confession, quite possibly even to counseling and maybe one or the other or neither. The CTCR is also clear that the pastors whose life involves a scandal, as in an affair, is no longer eligible for a call. The CTCR writes, a scandalous life leads people to blaspheme God's name. And these causes not only provide the grounds for removing the man from service, but they render him ineligible for receiving subsequent calls. Let's get this straight. You may remain in office if you preach false doctrine, but a scandalous life will get you fired or forever banned. Did God get it wrong with David? Well, I agree that a pastor, when he has committed such an atrocity, should possibly be removed from his current charge because the people refuse to hear him. But one wonders if he should be forever banned from the office. King David certainly was not. The pastor should, as you would any member of your congregation, be shown his sin, and if convicted and confesses, be given our Lord's forgiveness. That's what we do, no matter the sin. His confessor, and this should include the district president, but under our current structure, a district president is not allowed to hear a confession. Understand that. 
Our ecclesiastical supervisors are not allowed to hear confession because of legal liability. That is the truth. But they might direct him to further help both spiritually and with his family in the hopes of restoring that broken relationship. Then one could see, if the Lord so desires, that this man could be placed once more into the parish, or if conditions were right, never leave. Many may disagree with this. Obviously, the CTCR does. But it fits with how our Lord works and with those caught in sin. As noted in the CTCR 2003 document, persistent false doctrine and scandalous offensive life are the two biblical reasons for dismissing a man from his call into the holy ministry. Well, a third reason has also been given. The document adds, a third reason has often been cited within the Lutheran tradition, namely the inability or refusal to perform the duties of the office. Inability has reference to physical disabilities, diminished mental capacities, uh, that involuntarily prevent one from carrying out the responsibilities of the office. The refusal to carry out the duties of the office, in the words of Walther, is deliberate unfaithfulness in the office. This cause for removal may include behavior such as laziness, carelessness in carrying out official acts, drunkenness, obstinacy, um, laxity about visiting the sick. C.F.W. Walther, in his essay, The Duties of an Evangelical Synod, support this third reason. He writes, you see, a pastor can become very unfaithful in his office. Lazy, careless about his official acts, he may fall into sins of drunkenness and other great vices who he mentioned earlier. He may become obstinate so that no one can get along with him. He may become power mad so that everything he has to be that has to be done that has to be done his way. He may take the attitude that when he has spoken, the matter is settled. Uh, I, I kind of like that one. He may become lax about visiting the sick, may snap at people when they come to see him. He may fall into any of the many of sins that appear in the lives of pastors. Before this gets to the point of dismissing a pastor, though, Walther adds some words of advice. He goes on to say, now, to be sure, a congregation has the right to admonish such a pastor and to remind him of his duty. As we read in Colossians 4, where the apostle tells the Colossians, Tell Acrippus, see that you do all the work that you were given to do as the Lord's servant. The apostle is here given, giving the congregation a direct command to admonish its bishop and to remind him to be faithful in his office. Admonish is not deposing. Walter is directing us to a time of reflection. We would add to Walther's words that fellow brothers in the ministry, especially those who have been pastors for a number of years, could be a source of help. Uh, this would also be a good use of the time during a Winkle's casuistry. You know, that's the time, in a, well, for you laymen, that's the time we spend kind of talking about things of our circuit that are not official things like a subject or a, a paper or something of that nature. And it's, it's a good time. Our, our Winkle does it uh, quite often. And, and problems are brought up. Issues are brought up. Of course, one must never forget the use or importance of a father confessor. We need to get away from the idea 
that the first move of a congregation when having issues with their pastor is to remove him as you would one who is a hired hand. If we truly believe in the holiness of the office, and we do, how much more should we be patient and exhaustive in dealing with pastors and congregations? For when one adds, as did Walther in his 1879 essay, more and more reasons to dismiss a pastor, domineering in office, indifferent, lazy, careless, obstinate, etc., without careful and patient reflection, congregations start licking their chops as they attempt to discover the easiest way to remove their called minister. Have we forgotten that pastors sin and need to be shown their sins so that they may repent and receive God's absolution? Have we forgotten that congregations also sin in how they deal with their pastor? Those who have been given the charge to look into such masters must look at both. It would indeed be helpful if DPs who go into these congregations in order to help go in with a law gospel approach with emphasis on the gospel instead of one in which they give out rules and regulations in trying to determine how a congregation may, can, dismiss, depose, remove its pastor. They should go in with love and patience and by using God's word, deal with each matter as it arises. Uh, let's face it. There are many unbiblical reasons to remove pastors from their, uh, from, from, uh, I, I, back up a second. I think Pastor Poppy is going to share with you a document that was shared with a congregation in our district uh, in how to go through the process. Uh, is that correct? Where is he? You have that. Okay. That's why I didn't put it in mine, even though I didn't know he did it. Let's face it. There are as many unbiblical um, reasons to remove a pastor as there are people to come up with those reasons. Never underestimate the power of a sinful mind to, well, sin. If one goes online, he, she may find numerous places informing uh, congregations how to remove its pastor. One such place offered ten reasons how to fire their pastor. And these do not come from a Lutheran site, but what difference does that make? Members have access to the internet and are capable of finding numerous sites that share suggestions how a congregation may, can, fire its pastor, get rid of him, say goodbye. Is this given from God's word? Of course not. They read more like a job description. Uh, frankly, with the world's view of the pastoral office, it is any wonder that congregations are looking for any and every way to send their pastor packing. One pastor in a nearby circuit was told by his congregation that they wanted to depose him because he was scattering the flock. Ironically, the pastor was never accused of false doctrine. He was never involved in a scandalous or offensive life, but had upset the wrong family when he arrived at the congregation. All he did was deal with his family according to God's word. Another reason they wanted to dismiss him was because people, the ones who had scattered, were not giving their offerings. Somehow, money always works its way into this discussion. Suffice it to say that this congregation was looking for anything, everything, it could use to get rid of their pastor. What finally happened, as it happens in numerous cases, is that the pastor just couldn't take the pressure any longer and resigned. Truly, this was a sad, sad outcome. 
If you'd like to read more about the unbiblical reasons to dismiss your pastor, I direct your attention to the work of Pastor Philip Hoppe of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Ellsworth, Kansas. He wrote a paper for, you know, I won't say it, but he took, you know, to be able to do it at a pastor's conference. Uh, you can easily find this paper online. Uh, in the concluding paragraph, he writes, Congregations, by virtue of being church, have the right to call pastors. Also, if there is just cause, as outlined in the scriptures, they have the right to depose the pastor from the office of the public ministry on behalf of the entire church. However, they do not have the right to dismiss their pastor for any reason. A clear understanding of the nature of the office of the public ministry makes this clear. Time spent reading the passages collected in the table of duties confirms that Pastor Kornack you referred to. I believe it was him. Uh, this is the testimony of Scripture and is also the historic practice of the church. We do well to listen to the Scriptures and follow in the footsteps of the faithful who live before us in Christ's church. Pastors cannot be dismissed for any reason. In summarizing, the biblical and unbiblical reasons for dismissing pastors, uh, a pastor, this question needs to be asked. What can be done? For this, for this question, for this is a question asked by many who are facing the issues in congregation. Pastor Porath in his 2011 paper gave 10 excellent suggestions that range from the DP providing truly scriptural confessional counsel to the congregation and the pastor and said DP following Walther's advice, disciplining congregations for acting sinfully against their pastor. Added to these fine suggestions, pastors and congregations all over our synod can and must pray for pastors and congregations who find themselves caught in these troubling and sinful situations. We must also be ready to speak clearly God's word and stand by that word. Here the ACLC may be of help as they have consistently called attention to the subject of unbiblical removal of pastors. Finally, uh, a nearby pastor shared this from 1 Samuel. And quite frankly, it is not something that gets much airtime. Here's the directive from 1 Samuel. According to all the deeds that they have, this is 1 Samuel 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Give the people what they want. That's what our Lord told Samuel. He went on to say, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I mean, wouldn't that be something? A pastor comes and the congregation, We want contemporary worship. We want open communion. And they pounded and pounded and the pastor speaks against it finally okay do it do it and then he stands in the pulpit week after week and preaches against it hmm what would that do we are told at the seminary before we look at our first call be patient with your dealings with God's people yes be patient 
But always speak the word in all its truth, for God wants all to come to the knowledge of that truth and be saved. Thus we preach the law, the damning, condemning law. We preach the gospel, the sweet, forgiving gospel. For we are but lowly servants doing what God has commanded. Your pastor may be as poor as the boy's father believed in our original story. Pastors are all different. To help you, you may want to just pile money on him. I personally vote for that. God knows they could use it. Short of that, love your pastor. Pastor, love your people. Deal with each other according to God's word, with the forgiving word of the gospel always before you, always guiding you. Thank you. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. Name there at Christian. Till next Tuesday, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.